Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the podcast of excellence. We're talking about this book, the book. I, I, I don't like this book. <laughs> Maybe this book was included by Hemingway as an example of the tag-along hack friend in every creative circle. Um, when you're in a group, um, there's always that one person in the group not in necessarily, like, you know what I'm thinking of when I was in uh, about high school and the years after high school, but, um, you know, a teenager and I was into like music and I played in a couple of bands and some of my mates played in different bands and some of their mates and the, between us there was, you know, 20 bands across this kind of scene in our, you know, with through our suburbs uh, and our mates were in various ones of those and... um there was one of our mates, and he was a really good mate, really nice dude. Um, and he loved, he was a drummer. He loved drumming. Um, he loved really technical drumming. So his bands that he were intended to be like really fast punk with like super fast drums, uh, and also like really fast like speed metal where it's all like blast beats and stuff. Very difficult to do. You have to be a very good drummer um, to do it. And that was his thing. But the thing was, like, he couldn't even really drum a nice, straight, simple 4-4, four, four, you know, like just something basic. He just wasn't a good drummer. And so he was always aiming for the stars. He was always trying to learn, like, the hardest, most technical, difficult songs. And it was like, and he would, like, fumble his way through them. And that was what he loved. And that was what his band played, those kinds of songs. And he was just a bad drummer. Like, even on the basics level, you know what I mean? Like, he... He was in there with all us, and we were pretty good, I guess, for our age. Like, we had some success in our bands as young folks, and, you know, um, we were all decent at our instruments. And we were all decent enough to know that he was not decent enough, (laughs) right, (laughs) to be on our level. Not that we were, you know, pros or anything. Um, But... He's still part of the scene, you know? He was still very much an integral part of our scene, and everyone in that scene was like, you know, not there to try to be the best necessarily. It's just something you do for fun, and that's fine. Um, And it's like that one dunce friend who's like not threatening at all in terms of the craft or, you know, the, the, the whatever the art form is that your circle is passionate about. Um, but certainly a good sort of mascot and cheerleader and, you know, someone to bounce ideas off, that kind of thing. Um, you know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? And <laughs> I feel like, was George Moore that guy for this for this group? The one who, like, Yeats is like, oh, George is coming around again. Oh, my God. Have you read his book? It is. Oh, George. <laughs> hey, mate. Yeah, no, no, come in. Come in. Yeah, no, we're just talking about you, actually, how uh, good your books are. <clears throat> anyway, and then George is like, oh, yeah, I've got some advice for you on one of your poems, Yeats. Uh, and Yeats is just humoring him, like, oh, yeah, thanks very much, George. Yeah, no, I'll definitely take that in, on, mine, in, in, on board. Uh, in George's mind, he's, like, co-writing Yeats's poems in Yeats. And AEs and Edwards's mind, this George guy is just a hack who, like, you know, he's part of he's part of the friend group. But that that can only be 
that can only be it for me. That that must be. It's like a cautionary tale. That's why this was put in by Hemingway of like, yeah, there's always don't be this guy. All right, if you if you're putting together a group, a motley crew of authors and writers and creatives, yeah, don't be this guy. Um, anyway, that was a thought I had. Tekrovic says, I actually enjoyed the sincere and earnest George here. He seems positively smitten by and with AE. You know, none of this sunk in for me, this chapter, honestly. Um, Tech, it's funny, we seem to... not. I've not really liked any of this book, to be honest, but the chapters that I enjoy more seem to be the ones that you don't like and the ones that you enjoy are ones that I just don't even absorb. Like, they just go over my head. I find that amusing. But I think we've well and truly established that we have very different tastes. Now, I'm really tired. So, short reading. Chapter 5. I'm only. I'm literally only going to read for five minutes. So, um, I apologize in advance. Chapter 5. A suspicion stops my pen that I am caricaturing A.E., setting him forth not unlike a keepsake hero. It may be that this criticism is not altogether unfounded, and to redeem my portrait, I will tell how I saw A.E. roused like a Ryan out of his lair. A man sitting opposite him in the railway carriage began to lament that Queen Victoria had not been received with more profuse expressions of loyalty. A.E. took this West Britain very gently at first, getting him to define what he meant by the word loyalty, and when it transpired that the stranger attached the same meaning to the word as the newspapers, that for him, as the newspapers are queen or king, is a fetish, an idol, an effigy, a thing for men to hail and to bow before, he burst out into a fiery denunciation of his of this base and witless conception of loyalty, as insulting to the worshipped as to the worshipper. The man quailed before A.E.'s face, so stern was it, A.E.'s eyes flashed, a righteous indignation poured from his lips, but never for one instant did he seek to abase his foe. Whilst defending his principles, he appealed to the man's deeper nature, and I remembered him saying, In your heart you think as I do, but shocked at the desire of some people to affront an aged woman, you fall into the other extreme and would like to see the Irish race dig a hole and hide itself leaving nothing of itself above ground but an insinuating tail. Uh, my ears retain his words, and I can still hear our goodbye at the corner of Hume Street. We had been with the gods for four days, if not with the gods themselves, at least with our dreams of the gods, and in my armchair in Eli Place, I was born again to daily life in anguish and helplessness, even as a child is. The enchantment of the opiate is passing, I said. A.E. alone possesses the magic filter. He is an adept and can lead both lives and is on such terms with the gods that he can come and go at will. Uh, Doing his work in heaven and on earth, yesterday he was with Finn by the crescent-shaped lake on Slivergulian. Tomorrow... He will trundle his old bicycle down to the offices of the IAOS in Lincoln Place to take his orders from Anderson. But there must be some readers who cannot translate these letters into the Irish Agricultural Organisation Society and who nothing of the society, when it was founded or for what purpose it exists, and the best story in the world becomes the worst if the narrator is not careful to explain certain essential facts that will enable his listeners to understand it. 
Years ago, the idea of cooperation overtook Plunkett in America. He had seen cooperation at work in America, or had read a book in America, or had spoken to somebody in America, or had dreamed a dream in America. Suffice it to say that he hurried home, certain of himself as the redeemer that Ireland was waiting for, and at more than a hundred meetings he told the farmers that through cooperation they would be able to get unadulterated manure at 40% less than they were paying the gombine man for rubbish. At more than a hundred meetings he told the farmers that a foreign country was exploiting the dairy industry that rightly belonged to Ireland and that Dane was going doing this successfully because he had learnt to do his own business for himself. A very simple idea, almost a platitude, but Plunkett had the courage of his platitudes and preached them in and out of season, without, however, making a single convert. He chanced, however, on Anderson, a man with a gift of an organisation and an exact knowledge of Irish rural life, two things Plunkett did not possess, but which he knew were necessary for his enterprise. Away they went together, and they preached, and they preached, and back they came together to Dublin, feeling that something was wanting, something which they had not gotten. What was it? Neither could say. Plunkett looked into Anderson's eyes, and Anderson looked into Plunkett's. At last Anderson said, The idea is right enough, but... Plunkett had brought the skeleton. Anderson had brought the flesh, but the body lay stark, and all their efforts to breathe life into it were so unavailing that they had ceased to try. They walked round their dead idea, or perhaps I should say the idea had not yet come to life. They watched it, by, watched by it and they bemoaned its inaction night and day. Plunkett chanted the litany of the economic man and the uneconomic holding, and when he had finished, Anderson chanted the litany of an uneconomic man and the economic holding. And this continued until their chance brought out the brushwood a tall figure, wearing a long black cloak and a manuscript sticking out of his pocket. He asked them what they were doing, and they said trying to revive Ireland, but Ireland is deaf. He answered, she is deaf to your economics, for you do not know her folk tales and cannot croon them by the firesides. Plunkett looked at Anderson and took Yeats for a little trip on an outside car through a mountainous district. It appears that Plunkett was unfortunately suffering from a toothache and only half listened to Yeats, who was telling him across the car that he was going to make his speech more interesting by introducing into it the folk tales that the people for generation after generation had been telling over their firesides. For example... He told how three men in a barn were playing cards and so intently that they did not perceive that a hare with a white ear jumped out of the cards and ran out of the door and away over the hills. More cards were dealt and the greyhound jumped out of the cards and ran out of the door after the hare. The story was symbolic of man's desire. Plunkett understood cooperation and Yeats may have mentioned the blessed word but at the meeting it was a boar with bristles that rushed out of the cards and went away into the east, rooting the sun and the moon and the stars out of the sky. And while Plunkett was wondering why this story should portend cooperative movement, a voice from the back of the hall cried out, the blessings of God on him if he rooted up Limerick. A bad day it was for us, and a murmur began at the back of the hall. Yeats's allusion to the pig was so unfortunate one. The people had lost a great deal of money by following Plunkett's advice to send their pigs to Limerick. It was quite true that Limerick gave better prices for pigs than the jobbers, but only for the pigs that it wanted. 
Yeats, however, is an accomplished platform speaker and not easily cowed, and as he soon recaptured the attention of the audience. We always know, he said, when we are among our own people. That pleased everybody, and Plunkett had to admit that the meeting had gone better than usual. A poet was necessary, that was clear, but he did not think that Yeats was exactly the poet they wanted. If they could get a poet with some knowledge of detail, Plunkett reserved the right to dream to himself. The country might be awakened to the advantage of, of cooperation. And that's all we're reading tonight, because snore. Thank you for listening, though. Uh, and I will see you tomorrow.